I'm Aaron Hinkin. This is the Maryland Curiosity Bureau. Uh, my name is Darnell Henderson, and my question is, how did Mount Vernon become Baltimore's gay neighborhood? And part two of my question is, is it still Baltimore's gay neighborhood? Darnell, your question suggests to me that maybe you have thoughts of your own about the answer. What's your familiarity with the cultural scene in Mount Vernon past and present? So Mount Vernon is a very interesting part of Baltimore. I'm originally from Chicago, and so, you know, Chicago has a thriving gayberhood, is what we call it back home. So coming to Baltimore, it was very awesome to have a space that felt safe and familiar. What's interesting is, is that over time, I've been in Maryland since 2012, and over time I've seen it sort of, the area around Mount Vernon sort of change. And, you know, change is, is inevitable, but sort of sad in the sense of there's spaces that were very gay, very LGBTQIA, and they are no longer around. So for example, there was this piano bar down the street from where the Hippodrome used to be. And everyone in there, except for me and my husband at the time, were probably in their 40s or 50s. And we were probably in our 30s, early 30s. And it was just sort of like a lot of old gay folks drinking and just hanging out. Very sort of chill. And that place is gone. Um, one of the places that we enjoyed when we were younger, I'm in my 40s now, is um, the Baltimore Eagle, which I don't know if you know anything about the history of the Eagle, um, but it is on the more alternative side of alternative. <laughs> um, and we would go to the Eagle in Washington, D.C. often. And so the Eagle here, at one point it had closed but then it just moved to a different part of the neighborhood. It was closer to Mount Vernon, but now it's sort of over by, I think the area is called Charles Village, but I'm directionally challenged. Um, so, you know, I, I think that Baltimore's gay neighborhood is sort of not what we traditionally think of gay neighborhoods. And I think some of that it lends itself to the fact that the need to have, for, I guess for younger people, to have sort of safe spaces is no longer... I think a priority in the sense that it was for us who are in uh, who are older millennials or Gen Xers or you know even older, where you know the need to have a queer space was not only like important but necessary um, because being yourself could um, lend itself to you being you know experienced violence depending on um, the circumstance. Darnell, this is a great question because it's got so many moving parts across multiple generations. Uh, I'm excited to uh, find out what I can figure out for you. Thank you. Okay, step one, Darnell, we're going to take a look back at the Mount Vernon of yesteryear. Misty Letts moved to the neighborhood in 1982 when she was an art student at MICA. Misty agreed to meet up with me at her old stomping grounds for a stroll down memory lane. Like the whole street was where you were going out to, you know, the whole neighborhood. I'm going out, well, you knew, you were, you know, you might meet somebody someplace. And you sure didn't know where you were going to end up by the end of the night. We're at the intersection of uh, Eager Street and Park Avenue. And this is really, you can look in any direction and have a flood of all kinds of memories from this intersection, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Just, uh, uh, they used to have a lot of festivals on Reed Street, so they would block the whole, that you know, one block area of the street off and have, I remember coming across... Uh, walking to school uh, for some reason on a weekend. It was in the fall, so it must have been like a, a coming out day thing, or maybe it was just like, let's have a party. I have no idea. 
And I remember some of my classmates coming back to the house later. Did you see, you know, get a load of that. They were really sad. I was like, that was really, you know, I'm like laying in my little gay self going, that was really cool. <laughs> but the hippo was, was the place where most of the time that's where you started your night. And a lot of times that's where you ended your night. Until I moved to the area, I didn't really know everything that the gay community was involved in, like having pride days and coming out day and the uh, medical center that used to be over here above the Lambda bookstore. And everything's literally dried up. Like <laughs> a little bit of time is gone and it's gone because uh, you can really date that back to the AIDS crisis and a whole generation of men dying. And with it went the money that they used to invest in the community and, you know, buying properties, they usually had a larger base of income than the women did. And they started dying in droves. And that was it. And the uh, bar up here on the corner, Leon's, was the first gay bar in Baltimore. This is where the guys hung out. So we're looking at the facade of Leon's. You've got an American flag, you've got some rainbow flags, you've got some rainbow bunting does not look like it's open for business though. At this, uh, I think it opens up around four. They do like a happy hour thing until, until it's either empty or it's two o'clock, whatever comes first. So they're still doing their thing. They're still in business and uh, after all these years and decades. Yeah, as far as I know, I have a buddy that every once in a while comes downtown and meets his friends and stuff and that's where he meets them. Either here, the drinkeries, right around the corner on Reed Street. Um, they still have a pretty viable business. Down around the corner there is the, uh, where the Allegro used to be. It's a basement, kind of a piano bar joint. The leather shop is gone. That was always fun to walk into as a, you know, Cecil County young girl and be like, what is going on here? <laughs> We're walking around the neighborhood and you're looking at a lot of places that used to be this or used to be that. It must be weird for you. It's, uh, it's really odd. I, you know, Gampy's is gone, and we all, that's where we were as soon as everything shut down. Everybody went to Gampy's to get a bite to eat, and uh, it, everything's changed. Everything's gone, and I can understand why they've moved any kind of pride celebration from this general area to there, but it's still, by a lot of people, considered the neighborhood. Take me back in time to your arrival in Baltimore, your arrival to this scene in Mount Vernon. Just paint a picture of, of uh, your own life and where you were at at that point and what memories this place holds for you. I, I was a uh, obviously confused art student going to what was then called MI. Now it's Micah, right? And I lived two or three blocks that way, so I would walk past here going to school every day and um, didn't really have the opportunity coming from Cecil County to be among other gay people. Like, if they were, it was, you know, nobody was talking about it. So for me to be able to walk down the street and see men together holding hands, uh, women together, like, it was freeing. It made me more comfortable with myself. I was able to go into a community that accepted me for who I was, even no, even on a bad day, and um, and we all we all really there was a real camaraderie. Like we all understood how hard it was in the real world to be out there, um, and we all understood where we all had come from, 
and, and for the most part what we had come from because I was meeting a lot of people who didn't have a lot of acceptance at home and stuff like that. One of the bars Misty pointed out during our tour is a spot called The Drinkery on Reed Street. Back in 2018, there was a bartender there named Gus Vandycastle. I got a chance to interview him for another program back then called Out of the Blocks. And I'm going to share an excerpt with you now from that interview. As you're going to hear, Gus's history goes way back with The Drinkery. It took him 46 years to get up enough balls to ask me to work here. That's what it is. I, I lived upstairs for seven years, and they wouldn't let me work here. This was my club basement from hell. <laughs> my name is Gus Vandycastle. Uh, we're at 205 West Reed Street, the drinkery in Mount Vernon in Baltimore. I've been a employee here about five years. I've been drinking here for about 51. <laughs> I was just almost 17 years old. I had two drinks. I met a few people and whatever. I was a kid. I was fresh meat. It was a a very different crowd in those days as opposed to today. Even though it was sort of a gay bar in the 60s, uh, daytime it was pretty much country and western and nighttime it was gay. Uh, It was a strange and different time. But we had a lot of fun here. I met, like I said, I met people the first day I came in here. And uh, about two weeks later or so, one of the guys called me up and said, I'd like to see you again. And uh, uh, we met here, and my first uh, gay date was in uh, 1967, just uh, right after I had turned 17 years old. So it's been a while. <laughs> I'm always fascinated by bartenders and the perspective they must have. You see people who are at their best, at their worst, at their most real um, talk to me about some of the conversations you've witnessed in here or had in here that have filled your heart with hope and love and some of the ones that have broken your heart. I mean, you must have heard and seen it all. That's true. I, um, the hope is young people that you see, knowing that they're going to be empowered or in, envision a difference for their life uh, once they see a, either a gay bar or a gay community or a group of people that they can get along with better than their family. And... Uh, that's hope. That's always good. You see people who are uh, lost in the sauce, who have uh, problems physically or emotionally or, or mentally, either because they're gay and they, they gravitate here or because they're just insane. But it's, you know, anytime the door opens, anything can happen. And, uh, and, and it does. There's people that I know in these bars that I've known now for, you know, more than 40, 45 years. Some that are good friends and many of whom, especially during the uh, AIDS crisis in the you know, mid to late 80s into the early 90s when they finally started, you know, synthesizing the drugs that they used. And uh, I lost a lot of people. I know at once in less than a year, I went to like 20 funerals, sometimes two in a week. I had a roommate uh, who died of HIV at home. There's times when people would be sitting in the bar and all we talked about, you would think it was a waiting room for, you know, a hospital or a doctor's office because everybody was talking about the different types of medical conditions they had, either related to or complications from or trying to find out about what it was, uh, whether it was HIV or not. Today, it's a manageable disease. And uh, if you're in a talking community, there's an awful lot that you, some, you don't want to learn, but you do learn it. You do learn it. So uh, it's a horrible part. But then you see new people who come in. You make new friends every week. Somebody comes in who's just into town or this is the first time they've ever come in here. And they're in here with wide-eyed wonder as well. 
and it's it's nice to see that because they're finding a welcoming community and uh, everybody is looking for a new face uh, and a friend and we have a lot of people who sit in, and, and drink in here and bring their friendships here make them here at times they break them here but uh, that's all a part of the game and I need to go You've to got customers All right, we're going to head directly across the street from the drinkery now to visit with another longtime denizen of Mount Vernon. Neil Four is a co-owner of Neil's The Hair Studio. He's been in business there since 1984, but his history in the neighborhood goes back to the bell-bottom era. I think my first time finding Mount Vernon was, I don't know if you know this, but in the late 60s, early 70s, you could not buy jeans in stores. You had to buy jeans like you were buying crack cocaine. You had to go to these specialty places that had jeans, and Reed Street had them. And uh, I will never forget, I don't know how old I was, I would maybe 15, 16, and I saw a guy get on a bus, and he had bell-bottom jeans on. And I was like, where did you get these jeans? And he said, a place on Reed Street, and gave me the name. And I went in to buy them, and that's how I discovered Reed Street. But you couldn't buy jeans in any store, not even Sears, when jeans first became popular. So you found a pair of bell-bottoms, oh, I found but it. then you found a lot more in this neighborhood as well. Talk to me about the community of people that you found here and that you found a common bond with. Well, I blame television for homogenizing society. I think uh, before TV became very popular, Individuals were totally who they were, and which made them extremely eccentric because true eccentrics do not try to be eccentric. They just are totally true to their soul. And if you're true to your soul, you're not like anybody else. And Mount Vernon had a plethora of them. There was a wonderful place called the Peabody Book Stoop, and it was owned by a woman named Rose. And she employed old vaudevillians. So there was a guy there named Dante who did magic, and there was a a woman in there who would dance. And so these people, their heyday was the 20s, and they were still holding on to their eccentricity, and they could express that in Mount Vernon, which was wonderful. And then uh, the Peabody bookstore closed when Rose died and eventually fell down, and the Maryland Club took it over and extended their parking lot. You have had basically a daily front row seat to the changes in this neighborhood for decades now. Talk about that change as you've witnessed it out the window of this shop and walking up and down the street. Well, it was definitely more populated when I first moved here. Um, it, it, it has ebbed and flowed back and forth, up and down in every direction. Uh, we're getting a lot of people coming uh, from D.C., I've noticed. And uh, I wish everyone would fall back in love with Baltimore and think of it the way I do. May I ask you how old you are? Yes. How old are you? <laughs> you didn't say I had to tell you. You said, could you ask me? <laughs> uh, one woman just used to say to me she was older than her teeth and younger than her tongue. Uh, I'm uh, 67. <laughs> What's it like for you, Neil, to talk with younger folks that you and your generation kind of paved the way for in terms of community and, and cultural acceptance? Is there a gay generation gap, for lack of a better term? Well, I 
I'm, now I'm speaking for my generation. I think it's wonderful that you can express whoever you are. I had no idea that sexuality was going to become Baskin Robbins. I mean, I had I didn't know there were so many factions of it. And I think it's wonderful that people can celebrate who they are. I just see bigotry going in a different direction. Many people for years thought being gay was a choice, and now slowly they realized you were born gay. But so many of, of the people that are truly bigoted really believe that trans is a choice. And I think that is so sad for the trans community because the pain they must feel, I think, is way beyond what I felt being gay. If you feel you are born in a body that is not yours, I can't imagine. It's like you're buried alive in your own body. And why is it anybody else's business that you need to express yourself? How does it hurt anyone? You know, but I'm glad that now people are feeling more and more comfortable to to express who they are. And I wish everyone else would leave them alone. On that note, I'm going to introduce you next to Monica Stevens-Yorkman. She's a founder of the trans support groups Sisters of the T and the Baltimore Transgender Alliance. And as you're going to hear, Monica found her community not in Mount Vernon, but up the street in the Charles Village and Wyman Park neighborhoods. You're listening to the Maryland Curiosity Bureau, and we'll hear Monica's story in just a moment. My name is Monica Stevens Yorkman. I've lived in Baltimore for 68 years. You and I took a drive for a couple of blocks up Charles Street to get from uh, your building to the radio station where we're doing the interview, and we drove through Mount Vernon, and we passed the old Hippo, which is now a CVS pharmacy. We passed Grand Central, which is now a shell of a building being rebuilt to who knows what. It must be interesting for you to see some of these iconic destinations fading into history before your eyes. Yes, there, there are more. I mean, if we had taken a left and gone a couple of blocks, we would see where coconuts used to be. What was that? Coconuts was a gay women's bar, and it was open and affirming to trans people. Up on um, Chase Street, there used to be a club called The Phoenix, and it was a great drag bar. For a long time, Mount Vernon was, quote, unquote, the gayborhood. But Charles Village has had lots of gay people, too. Um, actually, parts of Roland Park and Falls Road have had its share of, of gay people. Um, one of the things about the 60s and 70s is everybody stuck out their thumb and they hitchhiked to get around. And I've had more of my share of professors from Hopkins who picked me up and turned out not to be the straightest arrows. Um, and that's still true to today, but, you know, it's not talked about. Monica is 68 now. She's lived in Baltimore all her life. But when she was a teenager, she ran away from home. And I landed in Charles Village in 1969. And so my first mentor was uh, Rusty Herrick Queen, who called herself Rusty. And... Um, we ended up at a place that's the site of the Purple Moon now. It was called the Open House Restaurant. And that was where all the queens hung out. It was a diner. 
And so they had a long counter, and that's where everybody sipped, and they drank coffee and gossiped and waited until it got late at night and went over in Wyman Park to turn tricks. And so she was going to teach me how to hustle and make money. And I wasn't very good at it. And the very first time I went out to try and make money, I got arrested. And so I spent three days in city jail, and then eventually I was released along for the rest of us. And um, didn't have anywhere to go and spent some time just kind of crashing around because that's what you did in 1969. And so that was my first, I guess you could call, transition. Interestingly enough, um, I never had an experience as a gay man. I was never attracted to men. And so I went through another period of transition late in my 20s. Um, I was living with a girlfriend in Charles Village on 27th and Calvert, and I spent a lot of time bouncing in and out of lesbian bars. Um, at the time, it was a lesbian bar called Port in the Storm in Waverly on 32nd Street. And um, the name I was using then was Peaches. And so I was Peaches for a time. And uh, I forget exactly what year it was, but I went through a period where I got religion. And to use the term they use now, I detransitioned. And then I was married for 18 years. My marriage didn't last because I started transitioning again, you know, this final time in my marriage. And I thought that, you know, each time earlier in my life that it was just something that I was going through. I had no information and no support. And... um like a lot of people, I started seeing a psychiatrist. I have a long drug history, of which I'm in recovery. Um, I've been in recovery for 24 years. And um, and I was finally able to get some support. It must be interesting for you to look at what's the same and what's different for someone else who is maybe a teenager right now and who you see out, you know, kind of, and reminds you of the shoes you were in those many decades ago. I mean... What's different for for her out there, and what's the same? Well, one of the things that's different is there are so many more resources now, and, and I'm happy for that, and there are so many more avenues and so many more opportunities, and I'm also happy for that. What's the same is the rate of change is still way too slow. A lot of us die very young because of violence, you know, and so um, I've really outlived the average age of trans women, especially black trans women. Monica Stevens-Yorkman, by the way, will chuckle if you ask her if she still gets out on the town these days. She's mostly content to relax at home in her senior living apartment. Similar story with the other folks we've met so far this episode. Neil Four is happiest at home with his husband and their cats. And Misty Letts is more about good restaurants than bars or clubs these days. But you know, one generation blazes the trail for the next. And so the question remains, where's Baltimore's neighborhood scene today? My name is Rashid Green, uh, and I am 37. And we are in the old Goucher Station North-ish area of Baltimore. And we're standing here out in front of a, a bar called the Baltimore Eagle. Tell me uh, what, what you know about this place and its history. So from what I know about the Eagle, it was around since the early 70s. It catered to the leather segment of the gay community. Over the years, it's become more inclusive of uh, trans. It's inclusive of cis women, cis men. Um, I don't think straight people come in here, but um, 
it's in the middle of the neighborhood. It's kind of a crossroads. I started coming here oof, 2009. I will say coming here as opposed to going to bars in Mount Vernon, it felt more inclusive to be here, to be honest with you. The, the queer spaces in Mount Vernon felt very white and not so inclusive. I just see more black and non-black people of color in this space as opposed to Mount Vernon. We just walked down uh, Charles Street to get to this spot. We just passed the block where they uh, painted the street last year with the sign Black Trans Lives Matter. This neighborhood is now where Pride celebration is happening every year. Talk about your understanding of how this neck of the woods has come to be kind of the new neighborhood in Baltimore. Um, I think it's become the new neighborhood because it's representative of what Baltimore is. So Baltimore, the people who actually live in Baltimore City, our population is mostly black. So for a few years, like I said, I moved here in 2009. Um, Those first few years I was here, the Pride celebrations were in Mount Vernon. Um, But I think there was a lot of opposition from local business owners as they saw more and more black people coming to the Pride celebrations. I also noticed more and more police presence at those celebrations. So um, the past four or five years, it's moved to the Station North, Old Goucher, Charles Village area. And I believe it should be in this area because it represents what Baltimore actually looks like. Um, Also, and it's more inclusive, like I said, of our trans community. Uh, A lot of the black trans community is concentrated in this neighborhood. So this is kind of an epicenter um, for the Pride Celebration, the Eagle, but there's also the Crown, which is a few blocks away. Uh, There's also trips. There's also the gallery. So it really is indicative of what Baltimore actually looks like. And Baltimore's Pride Center is uh, located right here in the Old Goucher neighborhood as well. It used to be called the GLCCB. Correct, yeah. And uh, the Pride Center is not far from here. It's walking distance. Also, you have... um, Uh, You have Baltimore Safe Haven, uh, which provides housing and employment opportunities for black trans youth in Baltimore. Um, They're located about a block from here. So, like I said, this neighborhood is really is one of the epicenters of black queer culture and black trans culture in Baltimore. When I've talked with the older generation in the gay community, they've spoken with me about, like, being really happy that the younger generation is able to live in this more supportive, accepting world. But they've also heard them wonder aloud about whether or not the younger generation, how much they appreciate the burden that their predecessors bore on, on their backs as, as trailblazers. What do, you, what do you think about that? What are your conversations with older people in the community in Baltimore like? Is there a gay generation gap? There is. There is, there is a generation gap. And uh, part of that, you know, is, you know, how they say they don't teach the wide birth of black history in American schools, they also don't teach queer and trans history in our schools. So there's no one really preserving our history and teaching it to younger generations. But I do, and I'm in that weird middle range. So like I was born in the 80s, but I came of age like 90s, early 2000s. So I do remember the rhetoric on television about like AIDS prevention, AIDS education. And we don't really hear about it as much these days because we've made strides in like how we treat and diagnose HIV and AIDS. But I do want the younger, the, the, the Gen Z and what is it, the alpha generation, I do want them to be more mindful of 
you know, those who really fought hard tooth and nail so we can walk down the street holding hands so I can be outside shirtless during Pride Month. But also remembering that, like, you know, Pride was like a revolutionary act. It was like it was an act against police terror, you know. So back in the day, like police would literally burst into queer and trans spaces and arrest you just for existing, like not for lewd conduct, just just for being in a room. You could be arrested or even killed by the police um, or just by people who are bigoted towards you. And we do owe those that older generation a debt of gratitude. But I also want the older generation to see that although they started the revolution, the younger people are continuing the revolution because strides have been made, but we have such a long way to go. Okay, we're going to turn our attention uh, now back to uh, our listener who asked this week's question, Darnell. Uh, you asked about Baltimore's gayberhood, past and present. What are you left thinking about here at the uh, at the end of this episode? It is. It was wonderful to hear all of the great experiences and the um, the history of the gay experience here in Baltimore. Um, what I also found interesting is is that the number of different types of voices, older, younger, um, uh, minority, uh, racial minority, whatnot. I think that was also, I think, helpful to the question. Um, but I guess what I'd be interested in also hearing from is someone uh, who is younger, who is possibly benefiting from some of the trailblazing that has occurred um, on account of the older generation. So someone maybe in their 20s, Gen Z, Gen Y, someone who um, was not around during the uh, the height of the AIDS crisis or... Um, have, has not necessarily have lived the same during the same time period as some of us uh, who are a little bit older and more um, seasoned. Darnell, I genuinely appreciate you calling me out on that. And I'm, I'm aware also that, honestly, the youngest person we heard from in this story is 37 years old. And so, listeners, let me uh, turn to you here at the end of this episode. If you've heard this episode and you're a member of Baltimore's gay community and you're uh, you know, maybe 10, 15 years younger than our youngest person that we interviewed. Be in touch, curiosity at wypr.org. Maybe we'll do a sequel to this story or at least air your thoughts and, and your reactions as well. And Darnell, I'll tell you, one of the things that was interesting in interviewing people for this story and producing this story is that there are different attitudes from generation to generation within the gay community, even from boomers to Gen Xers to millennials. Um, that's, has that been your experience and your understanding as well? It, it really is my experience that, you know, depending on where you come in to your queerness, what generation, what decade, I, I think that your perspectives really do, are really shaped by, by what is really going on in our country and our world at the time you sort of enter into your understanding of who you are and um, what your queerness means um, for you. This has been a really uh, educational experience for me. I want to thank you for an excellent question. I, I learned a lot this episode, and um, who knows? We'll, uh, we'll see if there's a sequel in the works as well. Thank you. All right, that is going to wrap it up for this episode of the Maryland Curiosity Bureau, an original production of WYPR in Baltimore. Got a question of your own? You can put me to work at wypr.org slash curiosity. 
And where we go next is up to you. And uh, hey, if you like the show, do me a favor and drop a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever app you listen on. Just a line or two. Your words really do help other curious listeners find out about the show. Appreciate you. For the Maryland Curiosity Bureau, I'm Aaron Henkin. Thanks for listening. Be in touch. And we'll do it again next week. The Maryland Curiosity Bureau is made possible with grant support from the Peel Center for Baltimore History and Architecture. Online at thepeelcenter.org.